Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. This flows from Ephesians 5.21. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to submit one to another. That verb, submit, in 5.21 then flows through the examples that Paul gives us in the end of chapter 5 and through chapter 6. He gives us the household codes, if you will. So he talks about the relationship of the husband and the wife, and then he talks about the relationship of the parents and the children, and then he talks about the relationships of the slaves and the masters. So everybody that would have been found in the household in this day and time, that's what Paul's addressing. He's trying to talk to us with practical application of how do we live out the reality that God has redeemed us, that God has forgiven us, that God has chosen us, that God has loved us, that as believers, we are now light, we are no longer darkness, we are now alive, we are no longer dead, and he's communicating to a specific audience, how do you live normal daily life? So that's what we're going to do is instead of trying to adapt it all to our time, we're going to look at what he said to his time, and there are many applications that we can draw. The central idea of the text is that faithfully obeying, even though we don't like that word, faithfully obeying and exercising human authority glorifies God. So everybody in life has to obey or exercise at some point authority. How you obey that authority or whether you push back and reject that authority can glorify God or not. If you have authority, how you choose to use the authority that God has granted you in this life can glorify God or not. So if you are faithful to God in the way that you obey and in the way that you exercise human authority, you can glorify God through those actions. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Would you stand with me in the honor of the reading of the text of Scripture? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Dear Lord, I pray that today you would help us to dig deep into your word and to apply its principles to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So as we walk through this text, we begin by starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, and we talk about children. Children, obey and honor your parents, verses 1 through 3. So the first point, children, obey and honor your parents. Let's not miss, let's not skim through so quickly that we overlook the obvious, which we tend to do often when we read Scripture. 
Paul here writing in a culture in which children were not really considered full citizens, in which children, especially the daughters, were kept at home, were under tight control, were kept away until they were married. Paul here in an audience writing a letter that is to be read, says children, and he addresses them directly, which means Paul expects the children to be present. Now that in and of itself is a countercultural message to some churches where we tend to separate our children off to one side and our youth off to another side and let the adults have their own space and never does the family actually worship or hear the word of the Lord together. And here, Paul writing addresses the children directly and he doesn't just say young boys, he addresses the young girls. He says children. Paul addresses them all. They should be listening. Now this beckons so many questions. At what age should children be able to listen? When should they be able to sit through a whole message? It's probably an individual thing with a child at that point, an attention span and all of these things. And so we don't have answers for that. It beckons the question, when do you cease to be a child? Children, obey, there's a command here. And if there's a command here, you wanna ask the question, when am I no longer a child? And all of us at a younger age think, I'm not a child anymore because we don't like the word child. But when do we actually graduate from needing to obey and eventually honor our parents? There is a moment in time where you're out from under the control of mom and dad, when you're out from under that authority of mom and dad in your life. And and we can't pinpoint that. For some, it may be sooner than others. For some, it may be 18. For some, it may be 21. For some, it may be when you're no longer living under my roof, then you can do what you want to do. Has anybody ever heard that line before? For some, it may be when I'm no longer paying your bills, then you can do what you want to. And there's some wisdom and truth in that too. If you expect mom and dad to pay the bills and to provide a roof over your head, then to obey the rules of the house is an honest and realistic expectation. But the text doesn't just say children obey your parents. The text continues on and it says to honor them. Well, to honor them doesn't end at 16 or 18 or financial independence or 22 with a college degree. Honoring your parents extends for a lifetime. It says obey and the word obey here is a stronger word than the word submit that was used in the husband-wife relationship, and that's telling for both relationships. And why does it tell us to obey? It says, for this is right, and we understand this. In a society, if the children do not obey the parents and do not do what the parents say do, then there's danger that the children will likely encounter, and there is chaos in a society. We understand that this is an argument from natural law, that when you see a society and the children don't obey the parents, that's the problem. But that's not the only reason. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then verse two, honor your father and mother. Honor requires more than just obedience. Honor requires you to esteem and to respect your parents. And I would say to all of you, things that you probably are already sensing and realizing, But from the time I was 18 to the time I was 28, it amazed me how much smarter my parents got. If you're 12, or if you're 14, or if you're 16, or if you're 18, and you think, man, my mom and dad just don't get it, they're clueless. When you have children, you're gonna be amazed at how mom and dad all of a sudden got really smart. So think about how you honor mom and dad at 12, at 14, at 16, at 18, at 22 at 45, and on it goes. Honor your father 
and your mother. Jesus affirms the importance of this command. You'll remember in the gospels, he criticized the Pharisees and basically said, you're overturning this. Matthew chapter 15, verse four, Mark chapter seven, verse 10. But then he gives us a motivation. God knows we need motivation. So here's motivation. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Now there are, there's a textual question here. Paul says it's the first commandment with promise. If you know your 10 commandments, there's also the commandment about the steadfast loving God. And some would argue, well, that comes at number three. This is, this is not number three. So that one's actually first. And others would say, well, that's really just a declaration of God's character. It's not a promise. So this is the first with a promise, which I think is a valid explanation. Others would say it's first in priority, not order. But nevertheless, there is a promise connected to this, and we need to take note of the promise. And if you're reading out of different translations, you'll note that your translation may not say the land. Your translation actually may translate it the earth. The promise is that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land or in the earth. You'll also note from your memory of the Ten Commandments that it says in the Ten Commandments, this is the land the Lord your God has given you. So what's going on here? Paul is taking a specific land command given to the Jewish people that is part of what's happening in the Pentateuch and moving forward. And he's generalizing that now as he writes to the Ephesians. And he's not saying to them, God has promised you this specific portion of land that you have left and he's gonna bring you back into it, this really important piece of land. He's saying to all of the Ephesians at this particular point that God has made a promise that things would go well and that you would live long on the earth or on the more generic land. So he doesn't include the second half of that promise. It's important for us to at least note that. The New King James Version, the NASB, the NIV, all use earth there. This is still an incredible proverb. It's a proverb. It's generally true that if you understand how to honor your father and mother, how to obey your father and mother, what you have generally done then is understood how to submit yourself to the proper authorities in your life. And as we learn to submit ourselves to proper authorities in our life, things go well with us. If we never learn to submit ourselves to proper authorities in life, then you're always going to be pushing back. You're going to be pushing back against your teachers. This is an unfair assignment. I don't want to do this. Why are you making me learn this? I don't need to learn this. You don't know better than I do. Even though you have three more degrees than I do, and you've been doing this 20 years longer, I still know better, and I'm not going to do it. And then you don't graduate. You're going to push back against your parents. You don't know better than I do. You're going to push back against that boss at that first job. I'm not going to do this. Well, great. You're not going to do it somewhere else. See you later. As we learn that in life, there are always authorities over us. And the best thing we can do is rightly and humbly before God, submit to those authorities where it is possible. Then we learn more, we learn better. An incredible proverb. So how do I apply this to you today? Do you all know that our parents have a Facebook group? How many of you know our parents have a Facebook group? Do you know what one of the most popular items on the parents' Facebook group is right now? Call mom. So application of obeying and honoring your parents today is call mom and dad, because I'm a dad. I like phone calls too. And so call your mom, call your, all right, you're not, I don't see any good body language. All right, this week, call your mom or call your dad, tell them what God's doing in your life, tell them what you're learning in your classes and end the conversation with, I love you. How many of you will commit to do that? All right, I don't see every hand up yet. I, I'm comfortable with silence, so get your hands up. I want commitments now. How many of you are gonna call mom or dad? 
Thank you, David. Yep. Good job. All right. Okay. All right. And seriously, you love your mom or dad? At least most of you do. Tell your mom and dad you love them. You have no clue what it means to mom and dad when you say, I love you. Some of you might, because they might break down crying when you say it because you don't say it often enough. But tell your mom and dad how much you appreciate them. If, if mom and dad, if they've gotten you to this point, you owe them a couple of phone calls to tell them what's going on, right? So I know you're busy. I know you're having fun. Call mom and dad. All right, second application for you before I move on. Don't expect mom and dad to always pay for everything for the rest of your life. Now, speaking as a dad, I'm happy to do it. I, I have no problem paying for everything. It's great joy that we can. But speaking as a son, when I go out with my parents now and I'm, I'm back home with them, I want to return the favor of what they've done for me all of my life, giving me everything, basically, making sure that I had everything I possibly needed. I want to return that favor to them. And I think that goes back into how we view life as well. And this command to honor your father and mother has implications for long-term care. Now, in our society, we don't do this well. We don't do this well with children, and I'll come back to that, but we don't do this well with parents either. We often are so self-centered in our generational thinking that we want to push everybody to the side and we don't want to take care of the people we need to take care of. So we utilize daycares and schools and camps and all of these things to push our children to the side. And we utilize nursing homes and hospitals and all these things to push parents to the side. Now, if that has to happen because there's medical conditions, I get it. I understand that. I'm not saying that you need to become a nurse so that you can take care of your parents even in those situations. But there are times where it would be real easy for us to provide better care for our parents. And instead of doing it because it's inconvenient, our society stiff arms them. We live in a society where we would just as soon abort babies on one end. And if life is not precious that doesn't contribute to society, you'd be very careful because euthanasia is then coming on the other end because life then is not contributing to society but weighing it down. And we're there. We see it happening on the horizon. Honor your father and your mother all the days of your life. Now, this beckons another question. Do I obey my mom and dad if my mom and dad are lost? Oh, this is complicated. We don't have time to get through all of it today. I would say to you, honor your mom and dad to the best of your ability in every decision that is made and realize they have wisdom. But we have to obey God more than we have to obey man. So here's what I'm thinking. Here's what's in my mind as I say that statement. God calls you to the mission field. Mom and dad are lost. Mom and dad say, you're not going to the mission field because you're taking my grandbabies to the mission field. You're going to live right next door to me and that's what's going to happen. And God says very clearly to you, go to the mission field. What do you do? In a calm, respectful voice, you sit down with mom and dad and explain to mom and dad that God has called you to do something and this is what you feel you have to do and you respect them and you honor them in the process, but if God has told you to go, you have to obey God. These are difficult waters that you have to walk through and it happens. It happens sometimes with who you want to marry. It happens sometimes with majors. It happens sometimes with careers. It happens sometimes with God's calling. These are complicated issues. And what Paul is telling us here is obey your parents for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And that should be your motivation. Even in difficult decisions, honor mom and dad. So now let me jump onto the parent side. Now, I know most of you are not parents. We're going to walk through what the text says. Write it down. Take notes. Store up knowledge for the future. Point number two, parents, do not provoke, but train your children. Here we see it. Verse four. Fathers, do not provoke 
your children to anger. Fathers should be responsible. Fathers should be reasonable and fathers should be reliable. Now it addresses fathers here because as we've already learned in this first portion that the fathers are responsible. Fathers are the head of the household. And yet both parents need to follow all of these rules and so parents should not provoke but should train their children. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Colossians 3.21 in a parallel passage says this, lest they become discouraged. So if provoking our children to anger discourages them, or if it crushes their spirit, the opposite of the discouragement would be to encourage. So as a parent, as a father, I need to make sure that I am encouraging as often as I am discouraging. It's okay for me to discourage bad behavior, but I need to encourage good behavior. And that's a hard balance to walk sometimes. It's a lot easier to point out the things that are wrong than it is to look at the things that are right and to give credit for the things that are right. I would say to you, even though this is addressed to fathers, men, if you marry superficially, if you're looking for somebody that's just a pretty person on the outside, but not very deep on the inside, then for the majority of you, the mothers are going to spend more time with the children than the fathers are, and the mothers are going to influence them much more than the fathers are. And if you marry superficially for this temporal time here on earth, you may have eternal regrets that you will pay for later. Do not provoke your children to anger. How do we do this? Well, just so happens I'm a dad and I struggle with this, so you're going to get a lot of examples. Are you ready? Here's some ways that you should take note to say, I'm preparing myself so I don't mess up. The Bible gives us many examples in the Old Testament too. Inconsistency of rules. You, you keep moving the, the, the goal line. You keep moving the out of bounds. What do you, I can't do this one day, but I can do it the next day, but then I can't do it the next day. And you think, oh, this is easy, but this is not easy because you've got a clearly set boundary and then you come home one day and you're extremely tired and you don't feel like enforcing the boundary. That is a clearly set boundary. And they push that boundary and go across that boundary and you're just sitting there and you go, I don't care, I'm tired, I don't wanna deal with this. I just wanna veg, watch TV and go to sleep. And the boundaries keep moving. Not being dependable or making promises and not keeping them. And one of the things you will learn as a parent is be very careful what you say and how you say it. If you make a promise and you don't keep it, people will not depend on you. If you make a promise, you better use a caveat in there somewhere because often we can't fulfill all of the things required to make a promise happen. Discipline in emotion or anger. Everybody's scared of debt because you never know when he's gonna lose it. Everybody's scared of mom. Don't mess with mom. Just don't get anywhere near mom or dad. Not offering encouragement as frequently as discouragement. Favoritism in the home. We see this in the Old Testament so clearly. Favoritism with one child over another. Joseph and his coat of many colors. Oh, Joseph, you're the chosen one. You get the coat of many colors. So what does his brothers do? What do his brothers do because of the coat of many colors? We're going to beat him up, throw him in a well, kill him. No, we won't kill him. We'll just sell him into slavery. We'll get a little money off of it in the process. Bloody up the coat and tell daddy's dead. Favoritism doesn't end well. Treating children the same or comparing them to one another. Different children have different gifts. They have different personalities. They have to be treated differently. We compare them too often. All of these are things that you're going to struggle with. These are things that parents struggle with as each child is different, has different giftings. And our job is to shepherd the child's heart towards the Lord. Paul has granted parents authority. 
But often in a parent's life, the best thing a parent can do is not use that authority or to make sure you use it carefully and wisely. So let me say to you, students, if you're sitting here and your mom or dad misused authority, abused their authority, if they were alcoholics, if they were mistreaters, if they were angry all the time, if they did things that that were not godly and not God-glorifying, I would say to you, take note of your heavenly father and how he does things more than your earthly father or earthly mother, and that you look at these commands and his fathers do not provoke your children to anger. It continues on here and it says, bring them up. Bring them up means to nourish, provide for their physical and spiritual needs. We bring them up in discipline. The word discipline here, padilla, training, you even hear in that a word that the cognate means educator or tutor. It relates to the word child. And so we see in this the aspect of training, reprimanding, discipline, the total education of a person is what it's after. So as a father, as a mother, you are to bring them up in a total education, in instruction. So there is corrective and there is formative discipline. And the corrective discipline and the formative discipline should both be used in wisdom and in love and in balance. The instruction is an admonishing, a warning, don't do this because it leads to this. You train their mind, think through this well. You have to do all of these things. And at this moment, as we look at nourishing them and disciplining them and training them and providing instruction and all of these things, the question that I ask you this morning is, are you prepared for the challenge of being a parent? The answer is likely no. So how do you deal with questions that kids ask? You want to train your children up to love the Lord. You're going to want to train your children up to walk with the Lord. And I'm going to tell you that children at a very early age in life ask some questions that are pretty astonishing. You can be riding down the road. And I remember riding down the road with a three-year-old child. And all of a sudden, they ask the question, Daddy, where's God? Why can't I see him? Where is he? How do you answer these questions? Go read your systematic theology textbooks. Why do we have systematic theology one and two? It's parenting 101 and 102. You're going to have to answer all of these questions. Dad, what's wrong with the world? All of these childlike questions that are asked in sincerity, are you going to sit there and say, I don't know, go ask the pastor? No. This text doesn't say pastors bring up everybody else's children. Does it? It tells me I'm responsible. So there's another challenge for us here is it doesn't matter whether you're going to use a curriculum, it doesn't matter if you're going to use a church, if you're going to depend on a great youth group, if you're going to send your child to Christian education or even to a Christian university, you know who's going to be held responsible for the training and the fear and the admonition of the Lord of your child. It's going to be you. You're going to stand before God and give an account for how you did these things. It doesn't mean we can delegate them all. We can use them all. So whether you're going to use homeschooling, public schooling, or private schooling, you better be involved in your child's education and use the tools well that are before you because one day you're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for how you did these things. Let's not miss this either. Look at the value here placed on children. Fathers, train them up, nourish them, give them instruction spend time with them. They are valuable. And I look at our society and I think this is a countercultural message. Psalm 127 tells us that children are a heritage from the Lord, a gift, a reward. Do we value children in our society as a reward, as a gift, as a heritage? 
Or do we look at children as a nuisance, as a burden? Get them out of our meetings. They're too loud. They always mess things up. When do you have to bring your kids along? And in fact, I would tell you this. If you are somebody that the Lord blesses and you have just tons of kids and you go out in public, people are going to look at you like you're weird. I have friends that have like six kids, five kids, some friends that have 10 kids, but I have friends that have a whole bunch of kids. And when people go out, they'll have other people look at them and say, Don't, haven't you figured out what causes that yet? Like, yeah, the blessing of the Lord. You don't like being blessed? Now think about this. Children are the only blessing of the Lord that we say, I've had enough. How many kids do you want? It's a common question and fit to be tied. We make sure I want two and no more. And I want them to have blue hair or bl blue hair, blue eyes and <laughs> blonde hair. And you could have blue hair. I don't know why, but you could. I, I want them to have blue eyes and blonde hair. And no, it doesn't work that way. You get whatever God gives you. I want them to be the perfect children. Not a chance. They're going to be yours. It's not going to happen, right? It's just, <laughs> it's just not going to, we all have a sin nature. It's going to take place. But the value placed on children here, I don't want children now because it's an inconvenience. I don't want more than a certain number of children because it costs too much money. I'm just saying, look at the value. All right, I got to move on. Point number three. If I haven't made you mad already. Point number three, slavery. Slaves obey and respect their masters. goodness. This is why you preach through books of the Bible, by the way, because if you don't, you would never touch on a passage like this. You just wouldn't. So I read a whole lot of commentaries. The commentaries basically said they were all over the map. One said 6 million slaves in Roman times. One said 60 million slaves in Roman times. Yeah, I don't know whether they left out a zero or the numbers were that vast. Some said 35% were slaves. So Paul addressing this had to look at slaves because it was there. And so let's note a few countercultural things before we dive into this text. First of all, he addressed the slaves directly, which meant he expected the slaves to be there and listen as well. He was talking to them, which means he expected them to be able to comprehend the words, understand what was going on. There's a value placed there. There's an equality placed there in the person to say, oh, they can't learn. They're not educated. Listen to the words. Understand what I'm saying. Obey what I'm saying. He valued them. He challenged the masters in front of the slaves to treat them well. Now, there's a countercultural message for Rome. And then he said, there is no partiality with God, and don't miss that. Because towards the end of this, he comes back to the masters and he says, masters, you better treat them well because God's not partial and he's your master and their master. And that is the fabric of a cord that when pulled long enough unravels the very fabric of slavery altogether. Now you have to recognize that slavery was different in Rome than what we recognize and think about immediately in the United States and what happened in our country. Racial factors played no role in slavery Many could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetimes. Many worked in a variety of specialized positions. Many received education or special training. And freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship with their former masters. It was a different scenario. And even though it was a very different scenario, it was still a despicable system. And in the midst of a despicable system, let's look at what Paul says to the slaves. Obey your earthly masters. Note the word earthly there. So you're in a situation that you can't get out of and you feel like somebody's abusing their authority. What do you do? Revolt. Fight against it. That's our instinct. And here Paul says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. And you're going to note it says as you would Christ. And then it says as servants of Christ 
And then it says the will of God. And then it says ask to the Lord. And then it says you're going to receive back from the Lord. And so there's, there's a redundancy here that says, how do you deal with a circumstance that's not right, that's not fair, that's not good? You don't focus on the immediate temporal circumstance. You focus on service to the Lord. Ultimately, everything we do is done as unto the Lord. So if you're in an unjust situation, if you're in an unjust environment, you serve as unto the Lord with a sincere heart as you would to Christ, an inner sincerity even in the midst of an unfair environment. Oh, this is tough. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. We're not doing things when everybody's watching so that we can be seen doing things so everybody will think we're good people. It's not eye service. It's not while they're looking on. We do it all the time because it's right and God's always looking on. And you know that's hard just like I know that's hard. You're not studying and doing the answers just because the teacher's watching. You're learning the material because God has given you a gift that you have to develop to use before him. And this is a difficult characteristic. At work, you're not just doing things to impress the boss. You're doing things the boss never knows you're doing because you're doing them as unto the Lord. And that is difficult. I I can't help but think this has an application too to social media. Think about social media. What do we do? We put on social media the things we want everybody else to see, the eye service things. It's our PR arm of our life, right? We want everybody to see the perfect things of life that are happening so that they look at us and they think, boy, look at that person. They've got it all together. And here we're, we're getting a command that says, don't do it by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Are you willing to do good things and right things and hard things when nobody's looking and nobody will ever know that you did them? But that's not applicable to me and to you today, I don't know what it is. And it's hard. Doing the will of God from the heart, wholeheartedly, literally from your soul. Lord, help us. May the Holy Spirit Give us the power to be transformed by the word, not conformed to this world, so that we don't do things like the world, always wanting a trophy, always wanting an accolade, but we do things because we know there's a heavenly father up above that has brought us from death to life and darkness to light, and we need to serve him. He gives us a motivation in verse eight. The motivation is knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. This is an eternal perspective and it's one of the keys to a mature Christian life. It's also delayed gratification rather than immediate gratification. I wanna do something, I wanna get a reward right right now. I did something good, what's my reward? Do I get a gold star, do I get a treat? Can I have some chocolate? I mean, what's my reward? Immediately, we want a reward. And here what the text is saying to us is your father's looking, you're gonna get a reward, you're just not gonna get it right now. There's an eternal reward and an eternal perspective that requires us to have delayed gratification. That's hard. So notice the type of service commanded. Respectful, sincere heart, not eye service, recognizing we serve Christ in all we do, willful and cheerful and not grudging or reluctant in our behavior. And to that, we all have so much to apply to our lives this week as we seek to follow the will of the Lord, we could stop right there. If this is the expectation of slaves with little opportunity to advance, what's the expectation of those who are paid to serve? And he moves on. And so do we. Point number four, masters do not threaten and treat their slaves well. Look at verse nine. Masters, think about how radical this is. In a time and a culture where masters could do whatever they want, 
Masters were in charge. They were the law. They were the judge, the jury, and the executioner of their household and of their slaves. And slaves were treated, even at that time, to some degree as property. It's what you do with your wagon or your car or your animals or whatever else you might think of. And here, Paul, in the context of a letter being read with slaves expected to be present, says to them, masters, do the same to them. Now, what does this mean? I I don't know that I know all that it means. Because every single word from the previous section can't necessarily apply here, but Colossians 4.1 in the parallel passage helps us out. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So perhaps this is best summarized or stated that you should seek the welfare of the slaves as the slaves seek the welfare of the master. So do unto them what the command is for them to do to you. Seek their welfare, which would have been so countercultural. And look at what it says next. Stop your threatening. So to keep a slave in line, you would threaten them. I'm going to harm you. I'm going to abuse you. I'm going to mistreat you if you don't do this. And often as parents, we do this too. If you don't do this, you're going to get a spanking. There's going to be a punishment coming. You're going to get grounded. Something's going to happen. And we use those type words often. And here what Paul is saying is he's not saying, the Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child. I get all that. But he's saying here, stop your threatening. What's up with all the threatening? Explain, be formative. This is a challenge to me and my attitude of how I live my life. It's radical. Verse nine, you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. You cannot play favorites in life. Our world has partiality everywhere. How you look, how much money you have, what kind of car you drive, how much you weigh, what society or class or prestige you came from. And here he's saying God has no partiality with him. So the slaves were just as precious in God's sight as we are. The poor are just as precious in God's sight as the rich are. The homeless are just as precious in God's sight as those who live in the mansions. The physically or mentally challenged are just as precious in God's sight as those who have extreme gifts in both. The untouchables of India are just as precious in God's sight as any one of us in this room. Whatever man-made system, whatever thing you might acquire from who your parents were, or an economic or a caste system or otherwise, holds no sway with God who looks on us equally without partiality. It's a radical statement. Don't miss it. We also note here, God designed marriage. God designed parenting. God didn't design slavery. It's a man-made system. So is the Bible pro-slavery? We don't have time to get into that today. And for me to try to teach this text as though it's just a boss and an employee is an insufficient way to teach the text. The text was addressed to those who lived in the same household as slaves and masters. We can still draw application from it. But we can't draw too much application to the workplace because there are some workplaces that are hostile environments that you just need to leave and go work somewhere else in a more God-honoring environment. So while we draw applications to our attitude and how we serve, we don't draw application all the way to to that. Is the Bible pro-slavery? Let me have you think about this. This is all I'm going to say about it. Paul writes in Philemon. He writes about a runaway slave, Onesimus, and he tells Philemon that, quote, he is no longer a slave but a dear brother both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
And he asked Philemon to, quote, receive him as you would receive me in verse 17. That's a radical statement. 1 Corinthians 7, 20 and 21 says, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. I would say to you, I don't think the Bible condones slavery. But at the same time, when I read the Bible, I think Paul's biggest concern was the gospel and how we lived our life before Christ in whatever situation we found ourselves in. Married, unmarried, with children, without children, slaves or masters. So what's our takeaway? Our takeaway is that we recognize the overarching principle. The Christian has one main goal. Faithfully obeying or exercising human authority in such a way that it glorifies God. It's just what Paul's talking to them. And here he ends the household coats. So next we turn to the whole armor of God. Dear Lord, we look at what your word says. And sometimes the principles challenge us. Sometimes the attitudes that are represented are difficult. So Lord, I pray that you would just help us to look at our own attitudes and to judge them and to look at what your word says. Lord, to allow the spirit to speak to us, to allow the spirit to challenge beliefs that we may hold or things that we may think or ways that we may act. Lord, may we allow our will to be conformed to your will. May we not create a God that we're comfortable with or satisfied with that would be an idol of our own mind, but may we wrestle with hard issues and hard topics in a way that glorifies and honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.